Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Cornerstone Church. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Just bear with us. Our head microphone, as you may have noticed over the last few years, has died. So I'm trying to negotiate with one hand all my stuff, so I apologize for the, the messing around. Right, there we go. Good morning. It's great to see you. If you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. It's great to have you with us. And if this is the first time that you've been to Cornerstone Church, we would love to give you a gift. We'd love to give you a gift. So on your way out, if you grab one of the um, Connect team, and they'll be wearing the, the orange lanyards, and we've got a lovely gift. There's a book there. There's a 20% off from a local coffee shop, which is great, for your first coffee. Don't photocopy it and use it every single time. And then there's a bit of information about our gospel communities, which is really, really key. So we, we're so happy that you're with us, so glad that you've come this morning, and we'd love you to take that uh, as you leave. Quick notice before we get into God's Word is um, on the 22nd of January at 7 p.m. in the back hall, if you are a covenant member, we have a meeting. So I would really encourage you to come to that meeting. It would be a, uh, an information meeting, but also a great time for us to pray, to reflect, and to look forward over the next year. Can I, can I say this, folks? If you're a covenant member, this is something that we've covenanted to do. So we've covenanted to meet together in these meetings to consider the things of God and life in the context of our church. So I want to really encourage you to be there. And I appreciate that things come up in life and kids have to be uh, looked after. So we understand that situation. But please, it would be great if you could, could be with us. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Nehemiah, which is the last book of the Old Testament when you read it chronologically. After this, there's 400 years of silence before the angels proclaim that the Lord Jesus is going to be born, and we've only just celebrated that at Christmas time. Now, we're in chapter 9, and just to bring you up to speed, the book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of God's people. God's people as you, we have seen, as we have read, rejected the Word of God, and as a result, they ended up being slaves in someone else's land. And over the course of time, they returned back to Jerusalem. Now, the story of Nehemiah is that the walls of the city of Jerusalem were broken down. And Nehemiah, who was from Israel but had never lived there, had heard about this, and it cut him to the heart. And as a result, goes back with the blessing of a pagan king who had control over the land to rebuild the walls. And what we've seen as we've looked at that, the walls being rebuilt, praise the Lord, in record time. But the reality is this, that the true nature and the true essence of what it is to be God's people is nothing to do with a wall. It's nothing to do with a building. It's got everything to do with who they are. And what we've seen over the last, last week, and as we've led to this, that actually the important thing is not only the building of the wall of God's people, but it's the building up of God's people in light of who they are as they look at a holy God. And last week, what we saw is that Ezra, one of the priests, and you can read all about Ezra in a book just before Nehemiah in the Bible, had opened up the Word of God, and he preached for, is it six hours? Six hours, top of my head? Six hours. So if I go for more than 45 minutes, you have no reason to complain. And while he read it, all the people stood. So as you complain because you're on wooden pews, please don't, because you could be standing. But what we see through that is that Ezra reads, he teaches the people, the leaders teach the people, and their response in light of that is that they remember that there were festivals and there were things that, that, that they did that reminded them of the goodness of God, and they had not done that for many, many years. 
And we looked at the, the wonder of the Feast of Booths, how God's people would spend time living in tents, reminding them of how God sustained them during the time in the wilderness as they came out of the Exodus. And here we come to chapter 9. So the festivals, the festival of the booths that you read about in chapter 8, that had come to an end. But here we see in chapter 9, there is a third public reading of God's law. You see that in verse 3. Have your Bibles open, folks. See, the first reading was in chapter 8, verse 2. The second reading, which was on the second day of the month, was in verse 13 of chapter 8. And what we see here, which is an overflow of what we read in chapter 8, is that in response to the reading of God's law, in response to them being reminded of who He is, there's this intrinsic desire to lament. Intrinsic desire to lament. In chapter 8, verse 9, look. All the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They heard the word of God and they wept. Verse 11, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. The people were grieving so much and lamented so much they had to be calmed down. Calm down. This is a holy day. So what we have here on the 24th day of the month, it tells us in verse 1, is another gathering of God's people. But as they gather... They are lamenting. They are fasting. They're wearing sackcloth and they have earth on their heads. See, folks, what's interesting is that we have read in chapter 8 that Nehemiah shows a quick reaction towards their tearful response to the reading of God's word. What does he say? Do not mourn. That's what he's recording for us. Don't mourn. This is a holy day. We see that with the calming of the people who are grieving. Now, this shows that Nehemiah is eager to associate God's will with delight. If we live in light of the will of God that is revealed in his word, that will, we will delight in that. That living according to God's will, his revealed will in his word is best for us. And we will delight in it. We will find joy in it. We will find hope in it. We will find comfort. We will see promise. Now, folks, that is true. Amen? That is true. If you've read the Bible for more than five minutes as a believer in Jesus, you know that that is true. But what is equally important is to see that this delight stands firmly in contrast to the goal of our sin. And if we were to put a full stop after reading the Word of God, and you will find complete delight in it, and don't grieve. If we were to put a full stop, we would be giving half-baked gospel. Because good news is only good news when it is delivered in the midst of bad news. And the reality is this. Because of sin, there is bad news. Because a holy God does, does, does not ignore that. He has to deal with that. See, when the law, the word of God was being read, it revealed to Israel how they and their ancestors had not lived in accordance to God's will. They were grieved. They mourned. And this gathering, this assembly, and the reading of God's word highlights a retrospective prayer that as they look back retrospectively at their history, and it reminds them of their history that leads them to corporate Confession. 
And I've got four things to talk about off the back of this passage. Number one is this. They own their sin. They own their sin. Folks, we are living in a time and in a culture that does not encourage people to own their failings. Does not encourage people to own their sin. There's always a reason why. There's always a mitigating circumstance. There's always issues from the past that need to be considered. There are now many different diagnoses that unfortunately are used to justify sinful things and sinful behavior. Now, folks, I want to be clear. Let me be clear. Sometimes there are mitigating circumstances. Sometimes there are issues from the past at work when people sin. And yes, there are genuine difficulties that people have that have to be helped and have to be managed. But this does not mean that people should not own their sin. And this isn't something new. Right at the beginning of the story, right in Genesis, when God confronts Adam because of his disobedience, Adam claims a mitigating circumstance. He says, it's because of this woman that you gave me. Does Adam own his sin? No, he doesn't. What does he do? It's your fault, God, because you did this. You gave me hair, and actually it was her fault. See, what we see here is Israel owning their sin. But they don't only own their sin in that generation. They actually own the sin of their nation and the sin of their forefathers. See, folks, we see it in what they're wearing. Sackcloth, ashes. They've got ashes, earth on their faces. In that culture, your body attire, in that culture, in that time, your body attire must express the same sorrow and grief, grief as the words and tone of your voice. It was like there was a physical response in chapter 8 to the delight of God's will. They were raising their hands and they were, they were on their faces. There is now an outward response to the conviction that God's word had brought to them. Something that got cared. It wasn't just lip service. We see that they own their sin and what they're wearing. We see in that they separated themselves. Do you see that? From all foreigners. Verse 2. Now this, folks, for Israel would have been a real sign of owning sin. Because if it, there were any mitigating circumstances that they may have wanted to use, it would have been this one. We lost sight of God's word because of the influence of the other nations. Now, the irony is that that's true. But it wasn't the fault of the other nations. It was the fault of Israel because Israel ignored God and followed the ways of the other nations. When you read in Ezra 9, Ezra has already prayed to God, confessing that Israel had not kept themselves separated from the people of the lands, the people who were the enemies of God. And that over time, they had taken daughters and married them, and they created unions as God's people with God's enemies. So what is happening here? This separation in the midst of their grief was them owning their sin. It was them saying, this is the sin that we have committed. And we're going to separate ourselves from you. And for some of them, that would have been their wives. We're going to separate ourselves from you and meet as God's people because this sin that needs to be owned is our sin. It's our sin. You are in this mess because of our sin. See, we see a corporate owning. They're pulling away way to deal with their mess. See, God had revealed himself to them in their history 
And in this recent reading of his word, and their sin was revealed. And we see, folks, that they own their sin in that they confessed. Now, the word confessed in Hebrew means cast off, to cast off. They confessed their sins, and they confessed the sins of their fathers. Now, the sense of confession being a, a cast off means that you throw your sin. That you throw your sin. And where do they throw it? They throw it before God in order to get it off them. Now, confession is not a deflection tactic. It can be if we don't mean it. It's an owning and a throwing off. As the word of God was read again, they would have recognized gaps, sins, failings. That's why, verse 3, they spent a quarter of the day confessing their sins. It wasn't just a blanket, I'm a sinner, forgive me of my sin. It was a, in light of who you are, this is where I've sinned. This is where we have sinned. Look at the failings of what we've done. Folks, we see that they own their sin because they confess their sin. We see that they own their sin in that the spiritual leaders owned the sin. Now, what was happening in this assembly probably happened near the temple. Near the temple, and the leaders were leading God's people, both in their confession, but also in leading God's people to where they needed to cast their sins off to, where they needed to direct their grief, where they needed to direct their confessions. Have a look at verse 5. It was a group of Levites, um, priests, those who were to represent God to the people and the people to God. They had this responsibility to lead God's people in prayer and praise. And what do they say in the midst of their grief? Stand up and bless your God. Stand up and bless the Lord your God. See, owning our sin is knowing who we have sinned against. That our sin stands in contrast to the will of God. And part of owning sin rightly is not responding, folks, with worldly sorrow. That cripples us and paralyzes us, but rather it is casting it off to the one who does and has dealt with our sin. Amen? That's what it is. So my question this morning is, do you own your sin? Or is there always a mitigating circumstance? Is it always about stuff that has happened in your past and you fail to remember that at some point the little boy has to grow up? See, folks, when we own our sin, we are to own our sin and we are to confess it. We aren't to be people who own our sin and dress in it. What do I mean by that? What I mean is this. In Christ... You are not defined by your sin. Yes, you may have consequences to live out because of it, but you don't own it anymore. So therefore, don't dress in it. Don't dress your life up with it. See, true confession and gospel grief because of sin is about our failings in contrast to his will and his glory. And our confession is about casting it off and giving it to him. The God that we have sinned against. But also to the God who is merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love. And it's this, folks, in which, which enables the Israelites to bless him in prayer as they confess their sins towards him. Number one, they own their sin. Number two, 
What we see here, it's a prayer of confession that is focused on God. It's focused on God. Yes, they are grieving their sin and their failing. Yes, they are confessing, but their prayer, their process of confession is focused on who God is. See, folks, when we know who God is, we truly know who we are. And as they sin, who do they bring it to? They bring it to, verse 6, the one who is the only true God. Verse 6, the one who is the creator. Verse 7 and 8, the one who is the promise maker and the promise keeper. Verses 9 to 15, he was the one who delivered them, redeemed them, rescued them out of slavery. In the middle of the wilderness, he provided for them. He is the God who speaks and he spoke to them. He is the God who revealed himself to them. Verse 7, he is the God who chooses. Verse 9, he is the God who sees. He is the God who hears, verse 9. He is the God of miracles, verse 10. He is the God who gives his spirit, verse 20. He is the God who instructs and sustains, verse 21. He is the God who gives land. He is the God who multiplies. He is the God who is just. He is the God who is righteous. And he is the God, verse 31, who does not abandon. Amen? Look at the God that they're praying to. Look at the God that they are blessing. Look at the God that they are confessing to. And folks, this is your God. Amen. This is your God. He is, verse 5, the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. This is who he is. This is who he has always been. And this is who he will always be. And folks, as they retrospectively look back at their history, they see the God and who he is is right at the center of their story. And not only is he right at the center of their story, he is right at the center of ours. Folks, as Christian people, those who are God's people, he, for us, is the only true God. He has created you. Before the foundation of the world, he set his affections upon you, and in Christ he has delivered and saved you from his wrath. Not sparing his judgment, but rather punishing his son instead of you. And he sees you. He hears you. He has given you new life. He has given his spirit that takes his words, that instruct and sustain. He provides for you, and everything he does is right. And amen, he will never abandon you. The God of their story is right in the center of our story. He, therefore, should be the focus of our confessional prayer, both individually and corporately, because of who he is. Both in this list that I've just read out and one that we're going to look at, another one that we're going to look at in a minute, these are the reasons why we should and we can cast our sin onto him, because it's all about him. Amen? Number two, it's a prayer that is focused on God. Number three, it's a prayer about the goodness of God and the wickedness of man. What we see here is that when they read the law, they also read out their corporate past, their history. And as they read out their corporate past, as they read out their history, that enables them to read their place in history. Their place in history. So interesting, folks, that, that we, that just as human beings, and we know through history that actually in order to understand the times that we're in now, we need to look to the past 
To look to the past will help us figure out why are the things happening now, both in recent history, but in ancient history also. And for them, it's the issues of their past that enables them to make sense of their present. And when we look into chapter 10, will give them a perspective glance to how they move forward in the future. How they move forward in the future. Now, this prayer is a prayer which is a corporate confession. And corporate confession that rolls out of corporate conviction is through the retrospective reading of Israel's history is not something unusual in the Bible. You'll see that in Joshua 24. You see that in Ezra 9. You see that in Psalm 78. You see that with Daniel. You know, that was an individual prayer, but what he does, he retrospectively looks at the nation's history, and we see it in Acts 7 with Stephen as he stands amongst people and shares their history. Now, for some of those corporate retrospective look back at history brought confession. For others, brought death. Like for Stephen, it cut, they got angry with him. And this retrospective reading or telling brings confession, brings conviction. And what has happened here is that as the law has been read, Israel have been convicted. And they've began to confess, as they do, their wickedness that stands in contrast to the goodness of God in and through the flow of history. See, verses 1 to 15, we're told how God created, how he promised, how he blessed, how he saw, how he heard, how he delivered, how he rescued, how he redeemed, how he led, how he, how he protected, how he provided, how he revealed his word, how he revealed his word to them. And how did they respond, verses 16 and 17? Have a look. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their necks. They did not obey the commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They stiffened their neck. They were arrogant. In light of who God was, everything that he had done for them, they refused to listen. They failed to remember. And folks, they gave glory to a piece of gold and appointed some of the bloke and said, you lead us now. You take us back. See, folks, they refused to listen. Despite everything that a God, they refused to listen and therefore refused to obey him. See, what we see here through chapter 8, chapter 9, what we see is the reading of God's word is read. It brings the light. It brings life. There is life in the word of God. So to, to refuse to listen to God who is life, there is only one direction that you're going to go in. Death. Death. Or the overflow of death, the bustedness of, bustedness of sin, the distortion of sin. That's where it's going to lead to. They refused to listen to him. And they were not mindful. They failed to remember. They were not mindful of what God had done. And they'd failed to remember. They'd failed to remember all the festivals and all the things that have been put in place that were put in place in order for them to remember who God was and who they were in light of him and how faithful he was. See, folks, what we need to recognize is the covenantal faithfulness is bound up in remembering. It's bound up in remembering. Even in the context of a covenantal relationship between man and wife, in the moments where you want to kill each other, no, you look back to the promises that you made. That's what you look back to. 
The covenantal faithfulness is based on what the, the promises you made. Till death to us part, for better, for worse. And I want to kill you now. And that's the worst that I could ever be. But I have to remember in order to be faithful to the covenantal relationship that I have with you. It's always bound up in remembering. See, Deuteronomy 6, it says this. We'll throw that up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be a frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts and on your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who God is. This is what God has done and this is what God will do. But take care lest you forget because forgetting the covenantal faithfulness of God leads us down a road of death, not life. Well, folks, for us today, we have communion, don't we? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Times of communion, not just to fill a service. As we respond to the word of God, whether that's conviction or joy or whatever it is, we come to the communion table of the Lord Jesus Christ who says to us, eat and drink in remembrance of me. And in doing so, we remember the new covenant. We remember the covenantal faithfulness of him. Because I'm telling you folks, and we know this, during COVID where we weren't able to remember together as God's people, we felt it. Amen? We felt it. And if you didn't, Get on your knees and pray to God and ask him why. We felt it. See, as they look back, they see that their forefathers refused to listen, that they failed to remember, and that they gave glory to a golden calf. And look how God responded, verse 17. Have a look. He was ready to forgive. <laughs> because he was gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he did not forsake them. And verse 18, even when they proclaimed that it was the golden calf that led them out of Egypt, he still led them through the wilderness. Through all those years, through the pillar of cloud of a day and a pillar of fire of night. And he gave him, verse 20, his spirit to instruct them and he provided to sustain them. And for 40 years they lacked nothing. And even, folks, the clothes that they were wearing for those 40 years did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Wow. 40 years. I stand on here for 40 minutes and my feet are throbbing. But God sustains. That's how good he is. Their feet did not swell. And he still, verses 22 to 24, still led them into that promised land. And 25 to 26, he gave them victory in that land and he caused them to prosper. And look how they responded, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. This is the time of the judges, folks. 
And this began a cycle of God being gracious and then God's people forgetting and sinning. And then the punishment and judgment of God comes upon them. Then they cry out. And then God shows his grace towards them and saves them again. And we see the cycle over years of sin and God's judgment, then his grace. Sin, judgment, grace. Sin, judgment, grace. They sin and God remains faithful and is gracious to them. And even though he's gracious time and time again, they would stiffen their necks. They would reject him and they would fail to remember and for years, verse 30, he bore with them through the Spirit, proclaiming through the prophets to the kings that were rejecting, and they would not listen. And eventually he gave them into the hands of the people of the land, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And it's at this point, verse 32, we see a shift in the prayer. It goes from looking back and saying, this is what our fathers did, this is what our fathers did to dealing with the present. And in light of what happened, and in light of how God deals with them, they don't shift blame, they own their sin. See, verse 32, they acknowledge that God is still God and his character has not changed. They acknowledge that he has been completely righteous in how he has dealt with his people, verse 33. They don't look back and complain and say, how could you have done that? Why did you do that? No, as we look back, you are completely right in justice. You have acted faithfully, verse 33, and we have acted wickedly. Not they, we. They own it. In saying this, they acknowledge that God is innocent and that he's right in his judgment and his discipline of them, not just their fathers. See, folks, for generations there have been patterns of sin, and those sins had consequences, and they had ravaged and damaged. Yet in the midst of experiencing these consequences, God's people see the loyal love of God and His patience towards them throughout any generation. That's why they don't shift the blame. That's why it shifts from them to us. And they go on, verse 36, that the reality of all this sin is being lived out in their reality. That we are still slaves, it says. We're still slaves. In fact, we are slaves in the land that you gave to our forefathers, but we're not in charge of that land. That actually we serve pagan kings who are over that land, and the, and the harvest and the prosperity of that land doesn't go to us. It goes to those who are over it, those in whom you gave us into their hands. We have no real freedom, they say, and we are in complete distress. See, folks, the consequences of generational sin, the refusal to obey because of failing to remember is being lived out and experienced in Nehemiah's generation, summing up the whole prayer like this. In light of God's goodness, how could we be so wicked? God's people take a retrospective look at their history in light of seeing the wonder of God in His Word. And it shines light on their history. And they are convicted. And they confess. So how should we confess in light of our history? Do we, folks, have a responsibility to pray and confess corporately? I think we do. 
I think we do. Nationally, if you look through church history, the effects of the Reformation took root in this country more than any other. Took root in this country. The people went to the stake, the people died in order that the Bible could be proclaimed and shared in all its fullness and all its truth and that regular people like you and me could have access to it and know the wonders of grace. Not that we had to add on things and do different things. And it took root in our country in ways that other countries did not experience. But so often now we are silent on the issues of the doctrines of grace because we're fearful to speak. And that has happened over generations, over generations, over generations, over generations. And we go from living in a country that is so influenced by the wonder of grace to being a country that abhors the grace of God. And part of that is our responsibility. So it's right for us nationally to confess. How about locally? Liverpool was one of the most churched cities in the UK. Outside of London, I think I'm right, and maybe part of Scotland, we have more empty church buildings than anywhere else. Only 50, 60 years ago, this city was thriving with gospel ministries. Paul and I went to a conference yesterday. Now, granted, not every church leader was there, but I think me and Paul were in the younger bracket of church leaders in that room. There's something that has happened over generations of which we have to take responsibility for in terms of the wonder of the grace of God and the wonder and the joy of what it is to serve God with everything in this city. And even this church. We need to confess that I think some of us, and I take responsibility for this, as the senior pastor of this church and one of the elders of this church, we have lost sight of what God has called us to do. So often we've heard from this pulpit that we want to be people who are marked by what we stand for, not what we stand against. But I think so many of us, including myself, are terrified even to be marked for what we stand for. So we've gone quiet on it. We're even scared to talk about the wonders that we find in the Bible regarding what it is to be a biblical masculine man. Even that word, oh, or what it is to be a feminine woman for the glory of Jesus. We're afraid to stand up for the sanctity of marriage between man and a woman in the context of our country because we're fearful of what that might mean. What might people think? We've gone quiet on the issues of the killing of the unborn child. We're scared to talk to the next generation about capacity and everybody's busy and everybody's tired. Good. Because Jesus went to the cross so he could save us. We should give everything because there are people in the street who are going to hell. We're scared to even talk about it. I'm scared to sit on a Q&A last week and people are asking questions of the young generation and I'm rattling my brains because I don't want to offend anybody. And all I want to say is the truth of what God's word says. Folks, we need to confess our sin of our cowardness that has come over a generation. 
And this generation thing has happened generation after generation. And if we don't see this, and if we don't confess this, if we are not convicted by this, I dread to think what the generational sin those little ones are going to be living in. God is so gracious and so good, but in light of his glory, we are so wicked. Number four, it's a prayer that recognizes what is at the heart of all sin. Verse 38, because of all this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. Folks, I'm sure we all have painful memories, don't we? about sinful things that we've done in front of other people. You know, when we've sinned in front of you, we've said something or done something, and it's been in, in front of other people, and maybe it was years ago, but you might be lying in bed, and then it comes to mind, you're like, oh my word, that was so embarrassing. Oh, the shame. And I'm guessing you're the same as me, if you're honest, the pain is more about the embarrassment before other people than it is regarding my shame before God. What we need to be reminded of, and I think this is what was happening here, is that the heart of our sin is not at a horizontal level. The heart of our sin is at a vertical level. That's the heart. As you read through the Old Testament, the sin that angers God the most is idolatry, which is the dishonoring of God, the dethroning of God, the relativizing of God in different ways. It angers Him, the Bible tells us. It's when we long for something more than God. So every sin that we commit, folks, every sin that we commit is a rejection of God. His good word. And therefore, he is the most offended in every sin. He is the most offended in every sin. See, King David, as you read about King David, King David, the man after God's own heart, as a king, shirked from his responsibility as a king, he slept with another man's wife. He killed her husband to cover her up, and then he lied to a nation, and then he was caught. And this was his response, Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It's always here. But against you, you alone have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Yes, he did, in horrific ways. Did David sin against her husband? Yes, he did, in horrific ways. Did he sin against his people? Yes, he did. But the heart of his sin and the heart of his shame was before the holy God. It was vertical before it was ever and ever is horizontal. And God's people here recognize that the heart of their sin lies in, their fa in the failure of their relationship towards God. It lies in their failure of their relationship towards God. That's where it lies. And folks, it's the same for, for us. Look at what God had done for them. They'd refused to listen. 
and they'd failed to remember. They had moved away from the very things that helped them live and enjoy the relationship that they had with God, His Word, His festivals. They committed idolatry because they longed for something more than Him. See, what was needed wasn't a self-willed change in behavior, but a turning back to Him in relationship. That's what was needed. Not I'm going to do better. Not I'm going to be stronger. No, this time I'm going to tear my eyes away. No, I'm going to turn off my computer. No, I'm not going to do those things. Next time I'll be kinder with my words. No. The heart of the sin they recognized was their failing of their relationship towards God. And it wasn't a change of behavior. It was a turning back to him in relationship. Their retrospective prayer had shown them that they'd failed in their part of this relationship. That's why their response is, because of this, we will make a firm covenant in writing. That's why they say that. We're going to make a covenant. We're going to make a promise. A covenant that is willed, determined. A covenant that is principled, acting in the light of God's word. And a covenant that is binding, written down. It's not going anywhere. Now, folks, I want us to know, they don't make this covenant to get a relationship with God, okay? They don't make a covenant to get a relationship with God. He has already made that covenant with them, amen? That's what it says. He chose Abraham and through them. They're in relationship because of him. But they make a conditional covenant before him to say how they will respond to that relationship and how they will move towards him. And we'll look more at that next week, all right? So if you want to come back for the next exciting installment, make sure you're here. See, folks, what we need to recognize is that our biggest problem is God. God's our biggest problem. Not that God is a problem, but God is our biggest problem. Because he is the one we have sinned against, and he is the one who judges and punishes sinners. That's a problem, isn't it? The one we have sinned against is the one who judges and promises. So what do we do? Well, for starters, folks, we need to also be reminded that the covenant that we are under today is the covenant of the blood of Jesus. Amen? That God didn't wait for us to get right before he sent Jesus. It wasn't things that we had to put in place in order to get right with Jesus. Before the foundation of the world, he decided that he was going to make a covenant with us, whether we liked that or not. And his covenant towards us is a willed covenant. It's a principled covenant, and it's a binding covenant that has been signed, sealed, delivered by Jesus himself. Amen? By him. See, God made a covenant with Israel and called them to walk before him. And to walk in his ways. And they failed. They failed. And they found themselves in a complete mess because they did not walk in the ways and the delight of the Lord. They lived for something else. And as a result, they're in this situation where they're confessing sins of generation after generation after generation. Folks, God in Christ has made a covenant with us and also calls us to walk and to live in his ways. To give our lives as living sacrifices for us to pursue holiness and for us to display his glory to the world. 
He's given us His Word. And when we fail to remember His Word, He has given us the wonder of the cross and resurrection seen in the sign of communion that we're reminded of. But if we fail to remember, we will walk down the road of death and sin, and it will affect the generations that come behind us. Maybe some of us need to make a covenant. In light of the wonder of the covenant of grace that Jesus has saved us, but maybe some of us need to recognize as we look like back retrospectively, both, both nationally, both locally, both church, both as a family, both as an individual, and say, I have refused to listen to you, and I have failed to remember. But thanks be to God that my relationship is not bound in how I live. My relationship is bound in what Jesus has done for me. But I am going to make a covenant to seek to walk in holy ways, to pursue you in the midst of that, and to we cast off my sin upon you knowing that you've removed it as far as the east is from the west and you choose to remember it no more so I can delight in your presence and in your glory and live as a free person. Folks, when we fail to remember and refuse to obey, that's when we sin. That's when we sin. So what we read here is the highlighting of the sin of the people. But more importantly, they are reminded of the mercy, the grace, the faithfulness, and the steadfast love of God that convicts them. And as a result, they turn back to him. So folks, can I encourage you, own your sin. Own your sin. Folks, can I encourage you, don't dress in that, but confess and cast it off to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the punishment for that sin. And then, give your soul to him. Give your life to him. Give everything that you have to display his glory to the world and be marked for what we stand for, which is the glory of God and the goodness that is found in the gospel in ways that we have never done before. We're going to sing a song in a minute that you all know, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're here for the first time, everybody knows this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I found, was blind, but now I see. That was written by a man called John Newton, and before he was a Christian, John Newton was the captain of a slave ship. John Newton was right in the middle of the heart of some of the most despicable acts that human beings have ever done to other human beings from different parts of the world. He was a racist. He was a broken, busted up man. And John Newton would pick up slaves and bring them through Liverpool. And then through Liverpool, they would be sent to all over the United States through our city, folks. And John Newton came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and on his deathbed, the last known recorded words, he says this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. Amen? Amen. There are two things. We are sinners, but in Christ we are saved by him who is 
the great Savior so that we can live as saints now and for eternity. So we're going to remember. We're going to remember. We're going to take bread and we're going to take wine. We're going to hold it and we're going to remember. And this is what I want us to do, folks. I want us to stand together. And together, we're going to corporately confess our sin. I will lead us in that. I will stand here and I will lead us in that. And then there will be a moment for you to individually or as a family confess your sin. And together as we eat and we drink, we cast that sin off onto the Lord Jesus Christ who has dealt with it. And we walk out of here, not as people who have been challenged by a sermon. I don't want that. I want people to go out and to know the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God has on people like you and me. Amen. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what we want. God doesn't want us to walk out of here, oh, that was really challenging. No, he wants us to walk out and go, how amazing is Jesus? And part of that is we have to remember what he has done for us in Christ. So take a moment on your own as the bread and the wine, the juice, it's juice, folks. Bread and the juice is passed. Hold it and then I'll call us to stand and we will corporately stand together. I will pray and then we will eat and drink and then sing for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So if you could pass that, that would be great. Thank you.